Matthew chapter 4. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It is not the first book that was written. It was actually written uh, most likely after all of Paul's letters. But we're going to be in Matthew 4, and we're going to be in verse 12. We're going to get right into it because there's a lot here. This is a kind of a strange passage. Um, I go through the same process when I preach every week, and I got to this and was just like one of those uh-ohs, just because um, last week was the wilderness kind of scene, the temptation of Jesus, and it's kind of uh, obvious in some ways for me where it was going to go and what was going to be, and then next week we start the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' sermon, which is like three chapters long, and it's pretty obvious what Jesus is trying to accomplish. You know, there's a lot of variety in there and what he, what he does. But this middle section today, the second half of chapter 4, it's just odd. And it took me, um, um, by God's grace, I think I found um, you know, somewhat of a connection to connect it all and make it make sense. But it's difficult. It was a struggle this week, which honestly is not much different than the other week. But we'll see uh, what God has to say. This is one of those passages I think you may read over just so you can get to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, um, because it's not really... I don't know, exciting, but it's, I think, pretty awesome uh, once we got into it. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, let me read to the end of the chapter. God's Word says this, Now when he heard, he being Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went in and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quote, the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. And from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And while walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, and he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, which is just a really cool name, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, father, and their father, and followed him. And he went throughout all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan." This is God's Word, and let me pray so I don't screw it up. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. It is the one thing that by Your Spirit You've given us that changes us from the inside out. So I pray that Your Word will do that, that it will, Father, lift the veils from our eyes and our hearts and teach us, comfort us if we need comfort, convict us if we need conviction, but let Your Word come alive to us and let us look at it with a different set of eyes today. Let, we, let us see it, Father, and let us see Jesus as a kind of king that perhaps we didn't consider before, but one who is bold, courageous, and but Jesus we pray. Amen. 
So as uh, I've said and will say, Jesus is king. He's king of kings, lord of lords. And Matthew is intending to really elevate or put that portrayal out there that Jesus is this coming king. And before he was born, his virgin mother Mary was told very directly by an angel that your son is going to be king. He is going to take the throne of David and he will have a kingdom that will reign forever. So there's no mistake about what was going to happen. Then, as a newborn, a multitude of angels came and told a bunch of shepherds to go and see this kid that was born because he's going to be the savior of the world, which really meant conquering all of Rome and everything that would be included in that. Then as a toddler, some wise pagans from the Middle East, most likely Moabites, traveled very far looking for, quote, the newborn king that they thought was going to conquer their land, prophetically so, and they came and worshipped little toddler Jesus in his house. The provisional king, the one who wasn't really king in the land at the time, Herod actually tried to kill King Jesus as a toddler, slaughtering children two years old and younger to try and find him. And so for most of his early years, Jesus was probably... Um, under the radar. What I mean is parents didn't probably talk too much about the true identity of their son. They didn't wave that flag out there. They say, hey, remember that miraculous birth and all that stuff? Remember when we escaped from Herod in Egypt? Guessing they didn't talk about that very much. It wouldn't have been very popular, at least in his early years. And actually, for about 30 years, Luke actually says that after 30 years, Jesus kind of revealed himself. So he's 30 years old, so for 30 years, Jesus lived a very normal life. He lived a life pretty much of obscurity. You wouldn't have necessarily known him different than anywhere else. He lived in a small town called Nazareth. It was like Darrington, right? It's just not something you go, hey, awesome things come out of Darrington all the time. No one really thought much about it. And ultimately what happened, he gets up at 30 years old, walks to the Jordan River, which was quite a hike, it's not like just next door, quite a hike, and he goes up to his camel-haired, covered cousin named John and is baptized by John. And that's the place where his identity is publicly affirmed less than the word and the voice of God the Father himself, and he is sent and anointed by the Holy Spirit to go complete his mission. But for most of his life, up to that point, Jesus was hiding, if you will. He was running at times, at least his parents with him. He was, as I said, under the radar. And the beginning of his ministry, we saw last week, begin, begins when he's led into the wilderness after his baptism, and he begins defensively. And what I mean is, he goes into the wilderness to endure a very personal and very private all-out assault by the Prince of Darkness. A temptation that none of us will ever experience at the level he experienced, or the intensity he experienced. But it's private, no one knew about it. Jesus obviously later told his disciples about it, but it was an all-out assault, very defensive. And he was at that time tempted to avoid suffering, he was attempted to take shortcuts to get glory. He was tempted to compromise or twist God's Word. But he endures the assault, he, he holds the line, and he proves that he is the only one worthy and capable to save man, mankind. And his only defense we saw last week 
only thing he had to defend himself was God's Word. He used God's Word every time a temptation came. Temptation, verse. Temptation, verse. Temptation with twisted verses, verse. Like he just throwing down the book of Deuteronomy to defend himself. And we learned that when we are tempted, God's Word is there to defend us. It is a shield. It is a protection. And I don't believe that's the only time Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. I'm apt to believe, because he did several times, he walked off into a desolate place or a wilderness often in his ministry. By himself. He'd be like, doing something like, Jesus went off to a desolate place. And I kind of think that maybe those were the times where Jesus experienced temptation again. Those are times when Satan was starting to unleash again. And so he got away into the wilderness and again focused on God. But what we see is after this first most intense wilderness wandering, when it's all done, the angels come and minister to him. And what does he do? He gets up and he walks out. And what I've begun to wonder sometimes is how many Christians would rather stay in the wilderness? They'd rather stay in that place because it's comfortable, even though it's tempting and painful, it's better to stay there than to deal with life. And what happens is, and I, I think maybe lots of Christians are in this place, you're in a state of perpetual defense where you really don't ever move, you just kind of endure. And it seems like a lot of Christians have a reputation for a very passive disposition toward life and toward mission. In other words, you kind of just wait for it to happen. You don't do anything. You wait for things to be done for you or doors to be opened that are so obvious you're falling through them. Now, it's almost as if we believe that the Christian walk is little more than just kind of, I'm just going to shield myself from attack after attack instead of acting in courage and trusting God and walking in God. We sometimes just cower in fear at our enemies. Our enemies, that being sin, our flesh, the world, Satan. So, what we see in this second half of the chapter is, the first half is Jesus on the defense. And He is defensive, He's protecting Himself, He's shielding Himself. But the second half is entirely different. On the second half, Jesus is very offensive. And I don't mean offensive as in like, I'm offended by you. I mean, He is a king. He shows just kind of what kind of king He is. He is a king who is on the move. He is a king who is to do something. He has come to free His people. He has come to rescue them from His enemies. Our King has come to reclaim His throne by conquering sin and Satan and death. And there's a passage which we'll get to some year, Matthew 16. And in Matthew 16, Jesus' identity is being questioned. And actually, Jesus questions Himself. He says, hey, Pete, Peter, disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say various things. And he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the Son of God. And he gives them an interesting statement that I think we may read past often or maybe read it in the wrong way. In Matthew 16, 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock... Now, whether that's Peter, whether that's what Jesus said, whether that's the, whatever, right? 
Let's not focus on that right now. But he says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now think about that for a second. We always have this picture, I think, and maybe you don't, but I think I often have, of Satan attacking us. Of Satan taking the fortress of God. Well, that's not what we see here. We see Satan has built up some walls, and what is Jesus doing? Attacking them. Tearing them down. He is not a king that's like, oh, I hope I don't get killed. He's like, king, I'm coming to kill. I'm coming to destroy and I'm coming after you. And he says, Satan's walls ain't going to stand. I'm going to conquer them. I'm going to destroy them. Satan might be fighting, and he is, but Jesus is the one who has declared war. And Jesus, just like General Patton, right? If you watch Patton, you should see it. It's an old movie, George C. Scott. Fantastic, right? Amen. I can amen for that. And what did Patton say? We don't hold anything. We take land. We advance. This is what we see Jesus doing. General Jesus doesn't hold anything. He takes everything. General Jesus is on the offensive and he has his sword this time in hand to start kicking some tail, not just to defend himself. He is launching an all-out assault on the gates of hell in order to build his church in the Bible says, according to Jesus' own words, he will succeed. So our mission, as you think about, okay, I'm a citizen of the king, Christian. I'm a child of the king, Christian. Empowered by the king, Christian. Okay, so our mission is not just hold down the fort until Jesus comes back. Which is, sadly, I think, typical of the Christian church. Okay, let's just, let's just not take him. No, 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 no. We're not here just to hold the fort. We are here to take ground for the kingdom. We are here to proclaim the rule of Jesus. We are here to declare that there's a king, that he has conquered, and he is coming again. And he does all of this by his word. He speaks so much about his word in this. It's awesome. To begin with, we see that John's arrested. John is his cousin. John is the Baptist. John had also spent many years in the wilderness eating locusts and all kinds of weird stuff. And he had come out and he started baptizing people. Now he's arrested. And there's a long story of why he's arrested, but he basically called out the king on sin. He's arrested, put into prison, and John is like that divine scout that the king sends out to check things out, prepare everything, and get the lay of the land, and make sure that it's ready for him to come through. And he was actually prophesied to come in the book of Malachi that we talked about and the book of Isaiah. said this guy, this messenger is going to come and he's going to prepare the way for the king. And so now that John's been in prison, that signals one thing. Prep is done. And the king is ready to come through and to complete the mission that he has given by God. And what's the first part of the mission? The first thing that Jesus does he goes intentionally into darkness. He walks into darkness. The, one of the darkest places you can find in Israel. The place he goes is pretty surprising. No one would have expected him to come from Nazareth, nor to come from Galilee, nor to go into Galilee to start his mission. But upon hearing the news, he leaves Nazareth, 
hometown that he's known for 30 years. And he goes and lives in Capernaum in the coastal town. It's a coastal town around the Sea of Galilee. And when he talks about his hometown, he talks about Capernaum. And you'll see throughout the Gospel, he goes back to Capernaum regularly. That's where he lives. And on a total sidebar, what I think is awesome is that as much as we do talk about cities and big cities and culture coming from cities and the Gospel being needed in cities and all these things, I think it's pretty darn noteworthy that Jesus chose to live in, to call His first disciples from, and to start His ministry in a small, unimportant, insignificant town. God bless Snohomish. Okay? Where God can begin a work that's powerful and reaches way beyond Snohomish, but He can start in small towns. small towns. And so, we are part of a mission here that is important, that is powerful, that is growing, and the seeds we sow and the things we do, we may never see the results of, but certainly may have results beyond this city. So Jesus starts in a small town, and it's a dark, dark area, region altogether. He doesn't start geographically in the epicenter of His religion, in Jerusalem. That's where you expect, like, the King of the Jews, He will put His headquarters in Jerusalem, and He doesn't. The place that he goes is this region of Galilee, which is described as dark. And it's very dark because, well, several reasons. One is, basically, it's the most northern city, or one of the most northern areas of Israel. And it's largely pagan. It's it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Because it's mainly Gentiles there. Not a lot of Jews. They have enough to have a synagogue. But it's largely Gentile, largely pagan, largely people that the Jewish king wasn't necessarily supposed to be coming from. And it is, as he said, a dark place. And so I think it's beautiful that Jesus is always found, always goes first into darkness. Those places that seem light, particularly those places that seem religious and light and clean, are the places where Jesus is often not found. Because he begins his revolution in a place that is dark. And when you think about darkness, you think about spiritual darkness, I want to kind of Lay out that image for you for a second. Darkness is, is a place that is full of fear. Now why is it full of fear? Well, I'm not talking about kind of dimness. I'm talking about darkness. Have you ever been in a darkness where you, just, you can't even see your hand in front of your face kind of darkness, right? Darkness is full of fear because you actually believe or feel like you're alone. And it's scary to be alone. It's difficult. We're not designed to be alone. Darkness is a place that is full of fear. It's also a place of hopelessness. Why? You can't find the way out. Put a little kid in... No, don't do it. But put a little kid in a dark room, and if they can't find the door or see a window or see any light, you know, they're going to be bawling. Darkness is pretty hopeless, especially when we're talking true darkness, where there's no like, okay, as long as I see a little light there, I'll be okay. And I can get out. Darkness is that place where you get hurt. It's full of pain. Why is it full of pain? Well, have you ever been in a room, I just happen to have been, where you're sleeping with your three-year-old son to get him to bed, and it's really dark, and you're ready to get up, but you don't know that there's Legos all over the ground, so you hop up and then you're in pain. Because there's stuff there. Sharp things there. Holes there. 
And when it's dark, guess what? You can't see the holes. I was running. Occasionally I do that. I know you probably can't tell. I do exercise a very little bit. And I, I exercise sometimes in the most obscure times. And usually it's because my wife is like, hey, you know, maybe you should probably exercise. And I'm like, don't tell me to exercise. So I'm like, you know, I have to like prove her wrong. So I'll go, I'm going to go exercise right now, right? So one time I decided to go exercise late at night. This is like two months ago, okay? I'm going to go exercise because, you know, whatever. So I go exercise. I'm running outside. We've got a, like a mile loop around our house. So I'm running. I have no reflectors on whatsoever, right? I just figure I'm so big that people will see me and they won't hit me, right? So I'm running, and wouldn't you know, everything's going great, and there's a big hole, and I don't see it, and I felt like my ankle kicked out the side of my leg so hard. It hurt so bad, and it could have been avoided by one inch moving to the right. One inch! That's what darkness is like. There's holes and stuff you don't know. You think you know where you're going, and then you get hurt. Darkness is full of pain. Darkness is that place where bad things appear good and good things appear bad. Do you know how good-looking, ugly people look under the campfire light? You know what I'm saying? You're like, I, I look fantastic under campfire light, right? The darker it gets, the better I look. So that's what I'm talking about. Good things will often look bad and bad. It gets Darkness is confusing. You see shapes of things, but you don't necessarily see what the thing is. Darkness is that place where many people stay because they want to hide their shame. and their, Don't turn the light on because you'll see my dirt. This is the place where Jesus goes. First. Perhaps only. And Matthew does, the region of the shadow of death. Oh my gosh, that sounds horrible. Now why is that? Well, this region up north was the first place that was always conquered when anyone new ruler came in. When Assyria came in, first one conquered. They experienced a lot of pain, a lot of death, a lot of brutality. They were, if nothing else, a defeated people. So what do you have? Like, who does Jesus go after? Who is he seeking after? The clean, the religious, the awesome, the we are studly and strong? No. He goes after the people who are lost, who are in the dark, the people who are literally on the margins, the people who feel defeated, the people who are least likely to believe. This is who Jesus goes after. And so he goes into darkness, and what does he do? He blasts on the light. He blasts on, he says, a light has dawned in this place. And last week, he used his word to defend against the darkness, right? Darkness is coming, boom, 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 darkness missile, darkness missile. And now he's like, boom, light comes on, I am taking you out, darkness. I am exposing you, darkness. I am destroying you, darkness. And you go, well, how does he bring that light? Well, it says, guess what he does? He preaches. He preaches. Preaching brings the light. Jesus will later identify Himself as the light of the world. Okay, Put that on the shelf for a second because it's really important. Jesus doesn't bring light. Like here, I've got light. He brings Himself. 
Jesus Himself is the light. So, what does that matter? Take it off the shelf. Christianity is not simply a declaration or a description of God's behavior. That's what you think Christianity is. You've got it all wrong. Christianity is a proclamation and a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and King. That He has done everything to restore relationship with God. And we don't do anything to achieve that. We just receive and believe what He has done. That's what preaching is. That light conquers darkness. That light awakens people from their sleep in the darkness. That light gives sight to the blind. That light exposes sin. That light shows us the only path, the one way to find salvation. The light of Jesus comes through one thing, I believe. That it's the preaching of God's Word. The preaching of who Jesus is and what He has done. Preaching is central to salvation. It is not an extra. It is not a bonus. It is not supplementary or even optional. As we look around our world, as you look around Snohomish in this area, whether it be Marysville or Arlington or Monroe, guess what? We live in a very dark place. The Northwest is particularly, even compared to the rest of the country, Chris talked about that in his Sanctity of Life sermon and proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. We live in a dark place. And so, let's be clear. The people who are living in darkness around us, whether it be in our neighborhoods or in other cities nearby us, they don't need good rules. They don't need good deeds or good advice. They need good That's what they need. It doesn't matter how many good things we do as a church. If we as individuals and corporately and some days preach Jesus. It doesn't matter how many buildings or homes we build in Mexico or Honduras. Those are all gloriously wonderful things, but it's not motivated out of people who have heard the preaching of Jesus. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. And so, Jesus goes in the darkness and He preaches, and as He's in this darkness, it is so awesome, He begins to build an army. Jesus didn't just come to preach, right? He actually came to make disciples. We talk about making disciples often in our church. Why? Because that's what Jesus commanded us to do, and that's what Jesus did. He made disciples, and those disciples are made by calling men out of darkness. And it should both shock us and comfort us, the weirdo nut jobs that he picked. Okay? It's shocking in one sense. You go, wait, that's just like me, right? Let me describe to you these guys. Because these guys weren't men of great education. They weren't uh, of great influence or, or wealth or, or great pedigree. I don't think these guys were stupid. I don't think these guys were poor. But they were very hardworking, ordinary fishermen. Blue-collar guys. 
And he calls two sets of brothers, most likely they're in business together, Andrew and Peter who have their own boat, and James and John who work for their dad. And let's also be clear, because oftentimes we talk about and making disciples and going for God and doing all these things. We think that's great for the single guys. The single people without responsibilities. Okay. Peter was married at this point. I don't know if they had kids. We only know Peter was married for sure because they later go to his mother-in-law's house. But it's likely that a lot of these guys were married, if not all of them. Probably had kids. Probably had a mortgage. Didn't call it that probably back then. Had jobs. These were normal guys. And let's not think that, like, well, they were normal guys, but they were guys of amazing character. That's why God chose them. Oh, Uncle Trer, let me uh, show, tell you, these guys are numbskulls, okay? These guys, after three years, they have the beginnings of character. They've been spending time with Jesus. But in the beginning, no, these guys are selfish. They're prideful. They're prejudiced. These guys, and you just... Just read the Gospels. You'll be like, oh my gosh, this is one of Jesus' guys? Yeah, these guys were not sympathetic. They were not humble. They were not compassionate. James and John got a nickname from Jesus called the Sons of Thunder. Let me tell you how you got that nickname. Okay, I love Jesus gave nicknames to people. I think it's awesome. Like, you guys are Sons of Thunder, right? Now, their mom was really loud. That could have been what it's about. But I actually think it was about this story. They go to a Samaritan village and they preach and they're like, we don't want anything to do with Jesus. So they come back to Jesus and like, they want nothing to do, to you, do with you, Jesus. If you'd like, we'll go ahead and pray fire down from heaven and kill them all. But Jesus is like, what's wrong with you? But these are the guys. That should shock us and comfort us because guess what? We're not always compassionate. We're not very humble. We do some really dumb things and say some pretty dumb things. But these are the people that God uses. People like us. And let's be clear. There are no other kinds of people to use. Like, in the world, there's not like, oh, well, where do the clean people live? Because I want to live there, right? There are no one who is dark. There's no one who's not dark. No one that doesn't have a hard heart. There's no one who's not in rebellion. God chooses to use the darkened, the hardened, the broken as His tools to do His mission because that's all work with. And it's awesome. It's incredible what guys did. So He calls them to follow them and what would take years for them to mature and if all of them would die for their faith, it took them only seconds to respond to Jesus. Seconds. It says when Jesus said, follow me. When he goes, follow me. Now, granted, I think there's probably a year's worth of time in between the first time they actually met Jesus and this point. So it's not like they just saw Jesus like, hey guys, come on. He's like, alright, let's go. It wasn't like that. Okay, It wasn't that mystical, magical, but it was mystical and it was very magical in that sense. But when Jesus says, follow me, what did they do? They dropped their nets and they went immediately. The word immediately is said twice here in a very short amount of time. In the book of Mark, if you read through, it says immediately, 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 immediately. All these things are happening quickly and responses are immediate. 
Now, I was thinking that Jesus' request to follow me, like if someone were to say follow me today, we have a very different connotation attached to that. Right? We've got Twitter, we've got followers. And sadly, I think a lot of people who claim to be Christian are more like at Jesus followers. And what I mean by that is actually you kind of admire Jesus from a distance. You maybe read his Twitter feed. Maybe you'll even retweet some of his stuff. Hey, Jesus said this. Pretty cool, huh? That's not the kind of following that Jesus is talking about here. As a rabbi, what he was actually saying is, I want you guys to come and live with me. I want you guys to do life with me. I want you to eat with me. I want you to sleep next to me. I want to spend every minute of my life with you. You're going to live with me. That's what he's talking about. I want you guys to be close to me. So where I go, you're going to go. What I say to do, you're going to do. That's following. And it's very countercultural for Jesus to do this because rabbis or philosophers would usually never recruit their own guys. It was always students or followers coming to so-and-so rabbi or so-and-so teacher say, can I follow you? Can I live with you? Can I, can I serve you? Jesus flips it upside down and says, guess what? I'm the one that does the recruiting. That no one, no one comes to Jesus on their own initiative. You might feel like you decided to follow Jesus, but it wasn't before He called you. It wasn't before you follow me. No one comes to Jesus on their own initiative, and that's why it is such a powerful response. Lots of people have said they follow Jesus, but not a lot of people have actually heard Jesus say, follow me. And how do we know? Because there's a drastic change. I mean a deep attitude, desire, heart level change. Where the Word of Jesus comes out, right? We're talking about the Word. It lights the darkness and it calls people to Him. The Word goes forth. What does it do? It enlightens the heart and the mind so much where your desire, your joyful desire is to obey Jesus. To be close to Jesus, even if it costs you everything. Because that's what it did. These guys, they left a lot. They left all kinds of worldly security. James and John, man, they had a family business. It was guaranteed. And they walked away. They didn't put their families up as excuses. Well, I can't do this because I've got responsibilities. I've got this. In fact, more than likely, as you read the Gospels, their families followed with them. It wasn't that Peter went, hey, I'm going to go on a three-year mission. See you later, babe. She came. Kids came. The families followed Jesus. Because Dad, in particular, heard the call of Jesus and he responded immediately. You didn't wait. Well, I'll follow you when i got my retirement built up. I'll follow you when my relationships are all fixed. I'll follow you when, when this, that, or the other thing is squared away. They followed immediately. Jesus came to make disciples, and disciples are the kinds of followers who do what Jesus says to do. Jesus is not calling people to bow to an altar. He's not calling you to like, hey, think about inviting me into your heart. 
Jesus is not calling people to just be good. He is calling them to a brand new way of living. A continuous walk where you are in submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Where you are asking yourself constantly, what would Jesus have me do? How would Jesus have me serve? How would Jesus have me spend? Jesus have me relate? What would you... like? Is that what comes into your mind? Because a follower and disciple of Jesus is very concerned and wanting to know with all joy, what does Jesus want me to do? Following Jesus restructures your priorities completely. And so if you become a Christian at any time, and that didn't restructure your life, that didn't change your calendar to so Jesus is in the center and I plan life around Him. If that didn't happen to you, I'm not convinced you are actually a Christian. That's not my call to make, but what I see as evidence is that when Jesus comes in, everything changes. Does it become perfect? Are you perfectly obedient? Heck no. Look at the disciples. But it was very clear what was at the center of their lives as they stumbled their way through it. And here's the other scary thing. Jesus' call to follow is not just an offer of salvation. It's a call to ministry. We're not just given a new identity, which we are. We are saved. We are adopted children of the King through the blood and death of Jesus Christ. We are approved, no matter if we do a second of anything. We are loved. We are protected. We are provided. We are as children with an inheritance waiting for us in heaven, irrevocable. We get a new identity. But we're also given a mission. He doesn't tell these guys, hey, follow me and I'll save your souls. He says, follow me and I'm going to empower you to save the souls of others. Now, a lot of us go, well, I'm not a fisherman. Neither am I. I try to be. Okay, I've got the gear. I've got a really cool fly rod. I haven't caught a single fish on it ever. Okay, I have a friend, Chad, you know, probably Chad Gallatin. He's caught fish on my fly rod standing there next to him. I just want the look, right? I just want to be out in the river. Brad Pitt runs through it. Yeah, I look awesome, right? That's all I want. I can't actually catch fish. So when I hear this, you know, like, you'll be a fisher of men. Well, I'm going to suck at that. But what you see, though, is Jesus speaking in the language of these guys. He's calling them to mission, and He's not saying, look, I need you to change all these things about you. He's calling them to mission saying, I'm going to use who you are to do my mission. So I don't care if you're a plumber. I don't care if you work at Boeing. I don't care if you have your own business. I don't care what you do. God's saying, you're mine, and we're going to use who you are, the skills you have, those experiences, to spread my kingdom. That's awesome. Again, comforting. I don't got to go to seminary. I don't got to do this to be a Christian. No, God has made you who you are, he made these guys fishermen. For whatever reason, fishermen were really good at being the early disciples and helping to build the church. Maybe because they're really patient, because I'm very impatient, right? I, maybe that's why. But he says, I want to use who you are to do my mission. Jesus enters into our darkness. Jesus calls us out by his word from that darkness. And then he sends out into the world with that word. 
And the last part, though, is even more amazing and more convicting. Ready? He doesn't just enter the darkness. He doesn't just make disciples by His Word in that darkness. What does He do? He's restoring the world. He's restoring it with the same Word. Jesus is making light go into the darkness. He is making disciples in the darkness, all with His Word. And guess what? He is destroying the works of the devil. He's destroying the work. What does that even mean? Okay. Jesus is tearing down whatever Satan has built up and restoring his kingdom. In the epistle, one of his first epistles, John the Apostle wrote that the reason, he says this, quote, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil. Well, what are the works of the devil? Well, where sin has affected everything. Sin has affected us mentally and physically and socially and economically in every other way. And God is on a mission through Christ to restore that by His rule. We have to understand something very important. The world was made good. Okay? The world was made beautiful and glorious. And why? Because it was in harmony under the rule of God. Everything worked the way it was supposed to work. People drank and didn't get drunk. People had sex and didn't lust. It was glorious. And then sin came in. And what is sin? Sin is rebelling against the rule of God. I don't want you to call the shots, God. I can be happier apart from you, God. So beginning with the relationship with God, destroyed, everything began to unravel. You had relationships with the self. Their huge identity crisis. Who am I? I mean, I'm trying to be God now, and you're God, so I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. I need pills and counseling to figure this out, or books or something, because I don't know who I am and why I'm here. All because you rejected the rule of God. Relationships with each other, right? You had Adam and Eve like, I don't like you. It's your fault. It's your fault. Whatever. Broken. Creation itself, right? Work was awesome. Adam loved work. It's like, work. Like, he like, you know, throw a seed down, boom, plant. Like, this is easy, right? Huge gardens, glorious. And then one day, kink, kink. Hey, this is really hard. Work sucks. Because you're no longer under the rule of God. Everything unraveled. And so, the Bible tells us that redemption is not just, but it is, the freeing of people from slavery to sin. It's the healing of the world. It's restoring the world to where God intended it to be. The kingdom of God is the renewal of the world by the re-entry of Jesus' rule. And the truth is, as people right, searching for an identity, marriages, institutions, as they place themselves increasingly under the authority and rule of Christ, his word, guess what they experience? Healing. How do I know that? Well, just take marriage. We've got a lot of married people here. Marriages break when they are done and contrary to how God says you should do marriage. And when husbands in particular submit themselves to the authority of God, what's that mean? I'm going to love my bride the way God says I'm supposed to. What does it look like? I begin to love her sacrificially. 
I begin to forgive her though I don't feel like it. I begin to take responsibility for her sins that I didn't cause, but heck, Jesus took responsibility for the bride, the church, and so I'm supposed to do that too. Guess what happens to your marriage? It begins to be healed. It begins to be restored. Why? Because you are obeying what God says. This is how things are supposed to function. When you take any substance, alcohol, and you use it for your own glory, you indulge in a way that God says, don't do this, you will suffer. And when you submit that part of your life or all parts of your life, whether it be money or relationships or job, whatever, you suddenly begin to be restored because you are being restored to how God says you're supposed to live. The way He designed it. Do we do it perfectly? Heck no. And how does he do this? Right? He starts going around the land. What does he do it? By his word. He says he does three things, and I think there's an order to them. He's teaching, he's preaching, and healing. Well, those are very different. They are, but they're very connected. What is teaching? I think Jesus taught what obedience looked like. This is what obedience looks like. This is what marriage looks like. This is what spending your money looks like. This is what working unto the glory of God looks like. I think he's just teaching them what obedience looks like. But if you only have teaching, that will lead you to moralism. That's why you need preaching. Why do you need preaching? Because preaching is an instruction on what to do. Preaching is telling you what the motivation is to do it. Preaching is saying, you know what? You're not obeying so that God will love you. God loves you. God is ruling right now and has saved you. Obey out of joy. Delight in what God has given you because He's given you rules to help you, not to hurt you. He's a Father who has concern for you and He's a Creator who designed you exactly the way you are. So live according to His Word and experience healing. And when we think of healing, I think we mostly think of physical. Oh, I know, I physically... And, and Matthew has mostly physical healings. But he, he names so many different things in there. It seems to me what his point is, Jesus heals all. Jesus heals everything. Everything there is to heal. And as I said, we need healing physically, without doubt. And God may choose to heal us, and He may not. But there's so much other healing that has to take place. We need healing mentally. We need healing uh, socially. We need healing psychologically. We need all kinds of healing. And that healing, I believe, comes through the preaching and teaching of Jesus. That the more you hear the Word, the more you understand the Word, the more you live the Word, you begin to live out what you are supposed to be in Christ. You begin to live out, I believe, what true humanness is. It brings you, basically, God's Word, that is, into alignment with God's rule. And you begin to be the person you're designed to be. Now, Jesus' mission, therefore, is basically to reverse the effects of sin. He is destroying the works of the devil and ultimately, and has, but we won't experience, he destroyed death. The return of the king means that Jesus has begun to put the world right in every way. And he heals us as we come to believe the gospel more deeply. And as you begin to believe the gospel more deeply, you begin to live under His Lordship more regularly and comprehensively, and I think you begin to experience healing more completely. So let me just put this out there. That I think some of you might really kind of fuck against this. If you are not experiencing healing, 
And by healing, I mean clarity. I mean um, harmony in your relationships. I mean security in your finances. And I don't mean like you're getting much money. I mean you are actually just content in what you have. If you're not experiencing restorative healing where you are just feeling pressure and angst, let me just offer a possibility that you are not exposing yourselves to or feasting enough on the Word of God. I believe it has that power. I believe that if I talk to you, any one of you, and asked you about your current problems, I bet your solution to that, or one you have not explored, is, well, I just read the Bible too much. I spend too much time searching God's Word. I spend too much time memorizing God's Word. I spend too much time digging into it and being really close to Jesus. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have these problems. I think the Word is healing. The Word is restorative. And the Word is designed by God to destroy the works of the devil that have come to infect our lives in all areas of relationship. So let me close this way. For those who are not Christians, and there are people who are not Christians here, there are people who will think they're Christians, there are people who don't think they're Christians, for you, I want you to know that you're going to be tempted to believe something, and that is this. You're going to be tempted to believe that you can't possibly be free or fulfilled living under someone else's rules. You're going to be tempted to believe that you know better. You're going to wrongly believe that God is holding out on you. You're going to wrongly believe that the Bible is nothing more than just an old book full of dead words with not really any power at all. You're going to be tempted to believe that true happiness actually exists apart from God's Word. And like our first parents, you're going to reject God's rule and seek to be your own Lord and make your own rules and find your own way apart from Him. It's going to lead to the death of everything in your life. It already has. You're truly not content. And so, instead of admitting that you're living in darkness, you're going to stumble your way through life and pretend you're not lost. And instead of admitting that I need purpose, I need meaning in my life, I don't know what I'm doing here, I'm just getting through the daily crime. Instead of admitting that you actually need a purpose beyond yourself, you're going to spend your whole life pouring yourself into empty causes or hobbies or other things to try and find satisfaction, and they may give it temporarily, but not eternally. And instead of admitting that you need healing, oh, I'm not broken, it's like someone rocking all the broken arms saying, I can lift that. You can pretend that you're whole. You can pretend it's not so bad, and if you know it is that bad, you're going to hide. You're going to hide in shame, not let anyone know that you're hurting, not show any level of weakness. And maybe you'll even medicate it so no one can tell. Let me just be clear. Jesus wants you out of darkness. And Jesus is the only one that has gone all the way into darkness. Whatever your darkness is, He's been there. And He's the only one that can bring you out. And I'm not telling you that Jesus has come like, well, Jesus is here to show you how to fight for a better life. No, I'm telling you Jesus is here to give you a new life. Brand new. All you have to do is receive it. You're going to have to die. You have to die to yourself and say, you know what? Old me is dead. And new me has come to live through the resurrection of Jesus. No one 
ever enters the kingdom of God pretending that you're wise and strong. You enter the kingdom of God when you begin to confess that you are lost and you are weak and you're in need of a Savior. Now Jesus drew lots of crowds. we got a crowd here. we got a crowd in Marysville this morning. Not everyone in the crowd is a disciple. You won't experience healing just standing in the crowd watching other disciples get healed and grow. The only ones that were healed by Jesus are the ones that came from even very far off and did whatever they could to get close to Jesus. That walked and pursued and acted to get close to Jesus. That's when healing came. And for those who are Christians, for those who say, I love Jesus, He died for my sins, I know that I have purpose, okay. You have a mission. And the mission isn't to sit in the bomb shelter hoping that Jesus comes back and saves you. We'll just hold down the fort till He's here. That's not the mission. At the end of his book, Matthew gives what is the mission of our church. It's Matthew 28, 18-20. He simply says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Me. I'm the King, He says. I'm the King. Now, go therefore and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I, the King, have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We have something to do. We are reminded by Jesus that we have the authority of the King not just to be defensive, but to be on the offense. We are empowered to go forth with God's Word to go into darkness. Whether that's your dark neighbor, your dark job, your dark city, wherever it is, you are called to go into darkness and not stay away from it. Ooh, that's yucky. We are called to go into darkness and Jesus goes with us because He already went ahead of us before. And we're commanded to do what in there? Hmm, just like He did. Make disciples. Well, how do you do that? I don't know how to teach somebody. You just preach Jesus. You don't have to explain Jesus. You don't have to know every verse about Jesus. You simply say, I love Jesus. He is King. He ruled. He died for my sins. He rose again. I have nothing to offer to save myself, but Jesus has done everything for me and I'm going to trust Him. That's it! You preach. And guess what? People get saved. People get saved. And then we're commanded to teach disciples. Everything that Jesus said. And guess what? Wouldn't you know, one of the things Jesus said was to go into the darkness and make disciples. So if you are a Christian, and you've come like, I've been a Christian for my whole life, and it's great, and I come and gather, and I get fed and fat and do nothing. You are not fulfilling your mission, Christian. You're not doing what God has called you to do. And you have to be convinced of one thing. The same thing that the non-believer has to be convinced of. That living under the rule of Jesus is not just for the good of the world and like, oh, I'm such a martyr, I do all these wonderful things. You have to believe deeply in your heart that living the way God has called you to live is the path not only to glory, but to joy. And if you begin, by God's grace, to believe that following what Jesus commanded us will actually lead to joy, you will go 
because you realize that you're going and you're serving the city and you're loving your neighbors and you're doing all these things is actually a means to your personal fulfillment in Christ. It is the path to joy. And if you're not convinced that God's commands are joyful, you need Jesus. I pray you receive today. I really do.